are just joining us, this is Baptism Sunday, and we're super excited uh, to be celebrating together what God is doing among our family. Uh, the reason we do baptism, I want to talk a little bit about baptism before we dive into the message, but the reason that we do baptism is because Jesus commanded us to. Uh, when Jesus, right before he goes into heaven, he says, hey, listen, you're supposed to go out and make disciples, like go to whatever the places you exist and dwell in, and actually like make disciples, live a life where people are like, what are you doing? And then you have an opportunity to declare like, hey, let me proclaim and demonstrate that there is a new ruler, there is a new kingdom in this world, and it is totally different and than, than the world that we uh, inhabit. And that when somebody chooses to follow Jesus, that we are to baptize them, that they are to be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so the second that a person chooses to trust in Jesus and follow him, that's the very moment where God unites his essence and his being and imparts his nature in that person who has chosen to follow him. His life becomes that person's life. Um, now, sometimes there's water nearby and you immediately truck down and say, let's dunk you and get this done with, right? But sometimes it's like it happens at a different time. So it's the declaration to follow Jesus that brings our salvation, but baptism is a declaration, a public declaration, and a reenactment of what has happened in that person's life. It's a celebration of what God has done. And um, so we practice here at our congregation, we practice immersion baptism, which is really, really interesting because of the symbolic nature of what happens in immersion baptism. Uh, it's actually a reenactment of Paul's expression of the good news in the gospel that we actually looked at two weeks ago in Ephesians 2. Um, when a person stands in the water, it's this symbol that they have been the walking dead, right? We use that example, like they were dead but they were also like going through the motions of life, that they were still living, but in a very real sense, there was a spiritual and maybe emotional, maybe there were relational deaths that existed in their life. And so they stand there and they sort of are admitting like, yeah, this is, I am a dead man walking. Like, this isn't good, and I need something else. And the other thing that Paul expresses in Ephesians 2, uh, which we talked about, is that we were following the powers and the kingdoms of this world. And when Paul uses the, well, when it gets translated as following, what we talked about was it actually is like you were enslaved by the powers of this world. That there's this very real and yet unseen spiritual dimension that is in our world that has influence over the world that we can see. We talked a little bit about a relational conflict that happened that we've probably all experienced, right? Like, actually, I reenacted this within my own family this past week, right? You have a relational conflict, and in your mind, you say, don't say that thing. Like, you know the thing you are not supposed to say because it will destroy the other person. And you know don't say it. And yet, when push comes to shove, something happens inside of you and you say that exact thing and the second before you say it and the second after you say it you know i'm not supposed to say that that was not good and you regret it right what's happening there paul would say that's evidence of the powers at work in our lives is it is it me that said that i mean i don't say things like that and it totally was me saying that. It's these unseen forces that have influence over our lives to take our own frailty and our own selfishness and exploit them to make bigger chaos. 
bigger problems. This past week, probably many of us have been walking through the grief of powers being in our world, and maybe we didn't know it, and we haven't been able to see it or name it. But as the shooting has happened in Texas, when that happened and I began to grieve and process through that, fresh off talking about the powers from last week, I realized this is the powers, guys. This is the powers that are at work in this world. I mean, think about this. There's this tragedy that happened, and everyone grieves it. Like, it was awful. And we're all asking ourselves, what happened? How could this have happened? Who's responsible? Who's to blame? What are we going to do so it doesn't happen again? And yet what we see time and time again is that nothing is done and nothing seems to really change. And we wonder, what is that about? It's the powers. It's the powers of this world who are exploiting and enslaving human selfishness and frailty and turning individual acts into massive chaos, right? Who's responsible for this continuing? Is it organizations, governments, politicians, a teenager, a police force? Like, Paul would say, it's the powers. Now, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't define what we're supposed to then act on and do about it, but Paul would say that there are spiritual forces that are unseen in this world that are influencing the world that we see. And those powers are taking our selfish choices and turning them and exploiting them into terrible, chaotic mess. Right? And so when a person stands in this pool, they're declaring, I'm a part of that. I'm a part of that terrible, chaotic mess. I have followed the powers. They have mastery over me. And I am the walking dead. And because of that, I deserve the wrath of God. The wrath of everyone. But God loved us so much that he said, no, 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 I see you in that pool, and I refuse to leave you that way. That can't be the end of the story. And so God sends Jesus, and he takes on flesh, and he unites his life with our life. He lives a life that we could never live. And then he stands in our place and dies. He takes the wrath and the death that we deserved. And so the person then goes underneath the water to symbolize that their old self has died with Christ. And that all those powers that takes our selfishness and exploits it and wreaks havoc has been buried with Christ in his death. And then we come up again out of the water as a symbol of Christ's resurrection. That Christ didn't remain dead, he came back to life. And so all of the dead spaces in our own life, God's bringing those to life again too. That we are alive in Christ. And Paul continues with that story and he says, and then you are seated in a place of honor next to God. The place where Jesus sat and sits, that's where you sit with Jesus and in him. And none of this is a result of anything that you've done. Like, you don't get to get baptized because of anything you've done. It is a gift. And so we stand before whatever war we faced, whatever storm might come 
to us whatever death is there, and we had no longer have anything to boast about. But in, we can't pump ourselves up about anything that we've done. We stand there, and our boast and our pump up and our way to face the fight is to say, I am a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus through faith and trust in him. And because of that gift, I am set free to do the very thing that God has created and purposed me to do. Nothing will master me. Nothing enslaves me. I am free to be who I was created to be from the beginning of time. Now that is a pretty cool declaration. And so we have two people today that are going to be declaring that. They're going to be saying, this is the decision that I've made and I am alive in Christ. And we get to celebrate that with them. And it's really, really cool. Now, two people came planned to do that. But what I want to tell you is sometimes we don't plan <laughs> uh, to get baptized. Sometimes there's a reality that we, it was off our radar. We didn't know it was the day. We weren't even thinking about that conviction in our own heart. And yet, it may be time for you to get baptized. That maybe you can't name a day where you say, this is the day that I chose to follow. Maybe what it is, is that you look back to last year and where you are now, and you think to yourself, gosh, I don't know when it happened, but sometime over the course of this year, I, I've made a decision to follow Jesus. I've made a decision, I've made a decision that I have confessed that I am a sinner in need of grace and a savior. And I have begun that process of following him. And what I want to say to you is if that's you, like, let's, let's do the thing. Like, let's get baptized. Let's declare and celebrate that you have made that decision. Now, I know for many of you, like, if you're thinking in your head, like, oh, maybe that's me. But then you're thinking, there's so many barriers to doing that. Like, so many reasons why that's not a good idea. I can give you all of the reasons why that's not going to happen and that's not a good possibility, right? Um, I totally get it. And so I just want to address some of those things. Maybe for some of you, you're like, well, I was already baptized as a baby. Like, so, like, you know, that happened. Um, when we are baptized as a baby, that is our parents' hope for us. That's our parents' declaration that, that they wanted you to come to know the faith, that they wanted you to one day place your trust in Jesus. But that represents their faith, not your faith. In fact, in many ways, your decision to be baptized would actually be a fulfillment of your parents' baptism of you as a baby. Now, the second reason why maybe you're like, oh, I don't know if I could do that is because maybe you don't have all the family members here that you would want here in order to be baptized, that uh, it's hard to coordinate everybody's schedule, and there are some people that are out of town, and, and I want to recognize that that also is really cool that you want to celebrate with as many people as possible who have been praying for you and, and walking with you in this journey, but trust me, if there are people that love Jesus and have been praying for you and wanting this for you for a long time, they would hate if they were a bear to you declaring and being celebrated that you've made this decision to follow Jesus. And then lastly, one of the reasons why you might be thinking like, oh, I don't know if this is really a good idea today is because you're thinking, I don't know enough. <laughs> I am an 
I'm not experienced enough. Like, my life is too messy. Like, I, I just, I haven't figured it all out yet, so I, I'm just not ready. And what I want to remind you is that uh, whenever baptism is recorded in the New Testament, and there's 27 of them, almost all of them took place immediately after the person decided to follow Jesus. Um, they happened when their lives were still incredibly messy, like messy theologically, messy morally in every way. See, baptism is not the de declaration that you've arrived, that you've got it all figured out and theologically you've crossed the T's and dotted the I's or anything like that. It is actually a declaration that you've started a journey with Jesus. Anne Lamott uh, is a humorous writer, and she once wrote um, that we spend so much of our time uh, trying to look like and act like put-together people to stay dry and sort of keep from slipping under. And she says baptism is the opposite of all those things. She says baptism is about surrender. It's about giving into all of those things that we can't control. It's this willingness to let go of balance and decorum and get drenched. So if that's you, and you'd like to publicly declare that you've decided to follow Jesus, I want to invite you to get baptized today. I don't want you to wait any longer to declare God's overwhelming, never-ending, relentless, and reckless love for you. And we want to celebrate what Jesus is doing in your life. Now, lastly, you may be thinking, I don't have any clothes. We've got you covered. <laughs> All right? We have a, a full set of change that you can change into before you get in the tub so that you don't have to go home all wet. Aunt Lamont would say, you should get drenched. That's what it's all about. But no, we're going we're gonna to take care of you. Um, so if you would like to do that, um, at the, uh, during our response time, that's when we're going to be doing our baptisms. And if you were, did not come prepared to get baptized, but you're like, no, I want to be baptized, um, Teresa is out there, and she's got all the things that you need, and she can help hook you up um, with that. So all you have to do is go over there and say, Teresa, where are you? And she'll help you. And she'll help you get the things that you need. Um, so as we dive in to the book of Ephesians, uh, I want to ask, I want to have you ask a question of each other first, okay? So this is our discussion time. Um, and so what I want you to talk about with the people that are right around you, and when we do this, we want to make sure that everyone has somebody to talk to, right? Like we are a hospitable people that's part of our value. And so when you do this, make sure you look around and make sure everybody's got somebody to be included with, okay? So here's the question you're going to talk about. Where did you grow up? Okay, where did you grow up? And was there ever an icon or an iconic image of Jesus that you grew up with? All right, where'd you grow up? Iconic image of Jesus. Ready? Go.
right, 30 more seconds. All right, go ahead and bring it on back. Okay, I'm gonna show you a picture. Uh, this painting is called the Madonna and Child. Actually, there's a more fancy term for it, but I'm just gonna call it the Madonna and Child. It's by a painter named Raphael during the Renaissance period. He did a number of these paintings with this theme in lots of different ways, but this is the one that I chose to show today, right? Um, so. The interesting, there, there should be something that strikes you as curious right off the bat when you look at this painting. Um, it's wrong. They're Italian, right? She's got like strawberry, they both got like strawberry blonde hair and they're very pale. They're very pale, <coughs> which is ironic because the reality is, is Jesus was Jewish and so was Mary right? So they did not look like this at all. Um, they were, it, this picture depicts that they are white, these Euro Anglo-Saxons, uh, but Jesus was Jewish and he would have had the physical features of somebody from that area with that background. Now, I did not realize that this was a problem until I was in college, Right, Because all of the, the pictures, or at least most of them that I remember and sort of stuck to my core of, of what Jesus actually, wait, wait, okay, wait, I'm having like this flashback memory. I was going to say most of the pictures I saw of Jesus growing up uh, were of a white Anglo-Saxon Jesus, uh, but actually that's not true. I do have this very strange memory of being at somebody's apartment uh, I don't know who these people were, but they were a black family, and I remember seeing a picture of black Jesus, and I remember seeing that and thinking in my head, well, that's wrong, but I'm not going to tell them, <laughs> right? That just popped into my head. Oh my gosh, yeah. So, so like, but here's the thing, like, I had constructed an image of Jesus where Jesus looked and acted like me where Jesus valued the things that I valued. My understanding was that Jesus was entirely viewed through my own cultural lens. Uh, he was me. He was my experience. My experience was what he experienced. Now, what I'm going to show you next is a church. It's a church in Nazareth, um, and it's called the Church of the Annunciation. And this is what the outside of the building looks like. Um, this uh, is a Catholic church, um, and it's named after the moment where the angel goes to Mary and tells her, hey, you're going to be with child by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be um, the Son of God, and it's going to save everyone. Uh, and this is a picture of the inside of the church. I one day would love to go see this building. Um, the thing that's curious about this church um, is that it has a significant historical significance that Nazareth was really the town where Jesus grew up, right? Um, remember, there's that whole thing of like nothing good could come from Nazareth. Uh, and so inside this building, as well as in the courtyards, there are, there's art everywhere, like art everywhere. Um, when the Church of the Annunciation <coughs> was completed, in 1969, the artists around the world were actually commissioned to recreate the Madonna and child using their own cultural traditions, images, symbols, colors, clothes, all of that sort of thing. 
And so what it looks like as you go through is like in the courtyard, there's all these banners, right? And underneath, there's sort of like, this is Ethiopia and France, Italy, Bulgaria, and Belarus, right? So there's all these different images using the cultural icons of that time. And then this is the courtyard, and then in the, inside the chapel, they're even bigger, right? These are where the mosaic tiles ones are. And they cover, so I just wanted to show you some of these. This is Brazil, if you can see that. This is Brazil. This is Cameron. This is China. Oh, that's Cameron. China. This is Croatia, right? Like, I love those colors, like just vibrant, right? Uh, this is the Czech Republic. Uh, the next one's Ecuador. Oh, yep, Ecuador. Uh, Guatemala. This is Honduras. Um, if I remember correctly, this one is India. Indonesia. Italy. This one's Japan. Korea. The Philippines. This is the Republic of San Mark. Mark Mariano, Singapore, and Taiwan. There are many more in the church. These are just some of them. And each one of them sort of represents Jesus and, the, and, and, and Mary in their own culture, with their own clothes and their own tribal significance. And I look at them and I say, that's beautiful. I have no idea what that means right? There are, there's one with the, the Ethiopian one where everybody's bringing these bowls to the feet of Jesus, and I'm like, I don't know that. I, I don't know what that means, but I know that that means something to them. And what I'm blown away by is the various ways and symbols and images that are used. It's this reminder that when the gospel goes into a culture, the culture can't help but assume the identities of the narrative and de depict them through their own cultural lens. And really, there's nothing wrong with that, but we do need to be aware of our bias. What these pictures show us is that whatever Christianity is, it is not and never was one religious culture. It was never a Western white religion that backed a political party or one form of government or a set of laws or rules or worship songs that are only Hillsong Elevation or Bethel or particular body postures that need to be taken while you're worshiping. That's, that's ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous. It, it's so much bigger than that. It reminds us, these images remind us that Christianity is way bigger than any small or singular cultural experience that you or I have experienced. And that, that Christianity actually is this multicultural, multi-ethnic, international movement of Jesus followers that is so much bigger than we think. And so the very question that we have to ask ourselves is how did that happen? Right, like this church is in Nazareth, which ancient Nazareth was only like 500 people. It was this backwater town. Everyone said nothing good could ever come from Nazareth. And yet this guy comes out of Nazareth and sort of from that, this worldwide, multi-ethnic, multi-cultural, uh, uh, multi multi-racial, multi-linguistic religion begins. How is it that this thing crossed every barrier that could possibly have existed and then baptisms are happening all over the world? How did followers of Jesus become the most culturally diverse religion 
in the history of the human race. And that's what Paul is actually going to unpack for us in the second half of chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you want to pull them up on your phone, you can go ahead and do that. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. Paul uses this really big word at the very beginning. He says, therefore. And if you've been journeying with us for a while, I always like to pull out the therefores or point out the therefores because they're really, really important. They're sort of, when you're reading the Bible, they are the word that sort of says, because of all that, because of all this, right? Because that happened, because that is true, there are implications that you need to understand, And so what Paul just talked to us about was what we just reviewed when we talked about baptism, where Paul is saying, listen, we're the walking dead. We are alive because of Christ. He has seated us in the heavenly realm. We are now set free in order to do all of the things that we have been created to do. And Paul's saying, because of all that, therefore, there are big implications you need to understand. See, sometimes we don't like this part of therefore. We like to keep our understanding of what Christ did for us as like, no, this is about me and my personal journey and nothing else matters. And Paul's going to blow that out of the water. He's going to say, no, 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 because of your decision, there are really vast, big, worldwide, global, multicultural implications to what is happening here. And so Paul says this, he goes, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Now, Paul's just setting up the thing. He names these two groups of people. He says, remember, uh, you were Gentiles and you were Jews. Now, probably when you woke up this morning, um, you didn't think, oh, my Gentileness, ah, shoot, I'm a Gentile, right? You didn't think that. And some of you, maybe you have some Jewish background I'm not familiar with, but most, I'm pretty sure us in this room, we're all Gentiles. And we don't even think about it and we don't even know it. But back then in the ancient world, the world was divided from Paul's perspective into two different groups. There were the Jews and there were the Gentiles. And if you weren't one, you were the other. Now for us, for them, that was a very important identifier. For us, that's just not the category that we attribute to our you-ness, right? Like, that's not the thing. But for the ancient people, that, those categories were everything. Paul's saying, listen, we could divide it into two groups, and you need to remember that. And so Paul continues in verse 12. He says, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. You Gentiles, all you guys, you were separated from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God. And Paul, in that one sentence, is sort of panning out a huge story that has been unfolding throughout the entire scriptural narrative, right? Throughout the entire biblical narrative. What Paul is saying, he's saying like, hey, you were created and is created like happy face, sad face. Happy Happy face. Thank you, John. Yes. Okay, that's happy face, right? Uh, We're created, everything was good, we exist in unity with each other and with God. It's happy face, right? And how long does that last? John, how long does it last? Depends on the day. Great. In the the biblical narrative, two pages. 
two pages, right? And then humanity sort of says, eh, I don't want to trust God anymore. I don't think he knows the right thing to do. Uh, I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to choose my own self. I'm going to ignore what God says that his wisdom is. And when humanity chooses to go their own way um, and to, to seize autonomy apart from God, everything becomes sad face. Sad face, right? Brokenness, death, sin, illness, all these things enter into the world. Everything starts chaos, the powers, right? The powers. Um, but what God does is he loves us too much to leave it that way, and so he chooses one family to bring healing to all the people of the world. And this one family is given what is called the Torah or the law. And it's supposed to be a witness to the entire world of God's goodness and his love and his provision and his blessing. Some of the laws are things like don't eat meat and cheese together, right? Um, some of the laws talk about like how to shave and when to shave. Some of the laws talk about all sorts of different things. And sometimes we think, well, the law is just like arbitrary whatever. So, well, the reality is, is that law, the ones that um, were telling people how to live, they were cultural markers for the people to live by, for the Israelite nation to live by, so that people who were like, uh, you're different. What's different about you? But when we're told that if the whole law was summed up, it wasn't about how to wear your hair and what type of clothes to wear, what to eat and not eat. The sum of the law we're told was, how do you love people? How do you love your neighbor? And one of the key things in the law was to take care of the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. That that was like the be-all and end-all. Listen, I know I'm telling you not to eat a cheeseburger, but the reason I'm telling you to do that is because when there is a poor, widow, orphan, foreigner, they know who to go to. They look for those cultural markers and they say, you're different, can you help me? And yes, the answer is yes that that's what that was supposed to be all about, that God had chosen this family to then not hoard the blessing, but bless the world, that they were going to use their cultural distinctness as a way to bless the world. But that didn't happen, right? You read the Bible, and they screw this up again and again and again and again. And their cultural distinctness that they were given actually becomes the source of pride. They begin to exclude orphans and widows and foreigners and they don't care for the poor. And they essentially say, I am great because I'm great. Like, God chose me, so I'm great. So I'm just going to keep my greatness. We're number one. We're the greatest. And in that, the Jews failed to do what they were supposed to do. Now, I know that the Jewish-Gentile divide is not one of the ones that you feel like really matters. Um, in our culture, in our context, we have really new and different uh, groups and tribes and identities and sort of divisions that we use as marks of cultural distinction or distinction. Um, we sort of have other things that we define that, that initially start as just like, oh, well, I'm just different because culturally I'm different, but later become sort of sources of pride and elitism. And because of our uh, arrogance and our insecurities, we often allow those affiliations to these different groups to give us meaning and purpose and identity at the exclusion of others. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, a couple years ago, pre-pandemic, so, you know, what is that now, like five years ago? Um, a couple years ago, me and my husband, we were invited to a birthday party of one of our friends. Um, this couple that we were friends with, uh, they are from Mexico City, and they invited us to the guy's birthday party. And on the invitation, it said 6 o'clock. 
Come at six o'clock for the birthday party. We were very excited. You guys already know where this is going. We were very excited about this birthday party because this family always threw great birthday parties with amazing food. So we were so excited. Now, we knew enough to know don't come at six. Like, we knew enough. So we, like, we like drove around the neighborhood for as long as we possibly could stand. And then at 6.45, we were like, mm, that's good enough. We're fine. We're going to go. So we park and we go into the house. We were the first people there, and she was still in the shower. And I was like, hey, how can I help? Like, how can I help? Like, what can I do? And it was fine because we were close friends. Not a big deal at all, right? But me and Zach had made a deal that we wanted to leave this party by 9 o'clock, right? We, we, were, we were like, we're going to get to bed on time. Like, it, I think it was a Saturday night, and so we had church in the morning anyway. So there was like a whole thing, and we were like, we'll be out of there by 9, it'll be fine. We'll come 6.45, we'll be out of there at 9, it'll be great, right? Okay, listen, the party didn't even get started until 9 o'clock, right? It not even started. By 9.15, it was pumping, like it was great, right? And Zach is like pulled into the band, and he's like singing, like it was so, I mean, it was a great party, but by 10, I'm tired, and I'm like, I'm having fun, but I'm just really tired. I have a picture from that night. My mascara is like dripping under my eyes because I'm so sleepy, right? Um, and, I'm, and, and, and so we like duck out at 10 o'clock, and I remember that there was conversation, like I know enough Spanish to kind of know what's going on. Uh, there were things that were being said that were like, what's wrong with the white people? Why do they have to leave the part? Like, why are they, why are they leaving? Like, are we not good enough for them? Like, what's, what's going on? And I just, and, and here's the thing that happened in, inside of me as a response to that. When are you going to put your kids to bed? When, when are you going to put them to bed, right? <laughs> These are cultural markers that we're just different. Our sense of time is just different. But the problem comes when we begin to use those differences as leverage of morality. I'm right, you're wrong. This is how things should be done, right? This defines who is in and who is out. And guys, there are all sorts of different ways, not just time, that we do this when we interact with people that are different from us. We create all sorts of division when it comes to our culture, our race, our ethnicity. We do this when it comes to uh, musical preference. Um, we do this when it comes to legal status and how that should be attained. We do this when it comes to politics and governmental systems. We do this when it comes to sexuality and gender. We've created sort of this new understanding in the church of who it is that's in and who's excluded. And Paul would like to say the same thing to us that he said to them in verse 13. He says this, but now in Christ, you who were once far away and excluded, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once excluded have been brought near. Essentially, what Israel um, and what we fail to do, Jesus does. Jesus fulfills what the Jewish people were supposed to be. Jesus lives this life as the perfect human who cares, who heals, who loves the marginalized and the least. He blesses the whole world and he dies for us. And in Jesus, the brokenness and the cultural individual pride that is all focused on Jesus, and he shoulders it all. And in that, 
those who were far and excluded and separated have been brought near. In verse 14, Paul continues. He says, for he himself, Jesus, he is our peace who has made the two groups one and he's destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, which he put to death their hostility. What Paul is saying is, look, when Jesus died and he came back to life, he made these two divisions one. He took whatever hostility existed between the two and he absorbed it into himself. And now all cultures, all languages, all citizenships, all musical preferences, how we shout and dance during worship, all legal status, political government systems, gender can be brought together in Jesus. And in Jesus, we are all brought to this place of peace with each other, and we are brought close to God. And Paul continues, he says, and then he came to preach peace to those who were far and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, all of us, people who have a looser concept of time or a very A-type understanding of time, people who have a capitalistic understanding of governmental structure or a social so, social understanding of government structure, people who are Republican or Democrat, people who are uh, pro this, anti that. He has brought us all to him. And for through him, we both have access to the Father in one spirit. What Paul is describing here is sort of this new humanity right? It's this new human family that has been created by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's this family where everyone is included on one term and one term only. To confess that you're a selfish jerk. To confess, to humble yourself before God's grace and recognize that I'm so messed up and I'm so prideful and I think that I'm better than everyone else. And I live in a culture in which they think they're better than everyone else. And it releases this havoc into the world and everything gets messed up. And entry into this family is based on the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And his resurrected life gives me an invitation to experience forgiveness and grace to become a part of this new family, this new humanity which is the church. And everyone is welcome based on these, this entry card of faith in Jesus. Now, I'm almost done here. Last week, we had our Serve Sunday. Now, I wasn't here, so I got to see pictures of our Serve Sunday um, from our Instagram page, and this is what I saw. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? These pictures weren't staged. We didn't say, hey, all you um, people of color, like, let's get you in a picture together and we'll just take pictures of you. We didn't, we didn't do that. I didn't take them. But what I noticed right away is the diversity of our congregation. 
Um, sometimes people ask me, like, hey, how big is your con- congregation? And I'm always like, mm, it's not very big. <laughs> it's pretty tiny. Uh, fudge the numbers a bit. No, I don't. But, or I say something like, we're not very big, but we're, we're, we're a mighty people. The power of God's strength, right? A couple months ago, someone challenged me on this, and I started to change my response. When people ask me, uh, how big is your congregation? What I tell them is, we're made up of 14 nations. Guys, look at this room. We are not that big. To have 14 nations that are gathered together and come together, and we all have different point of views and different worldviews and different cultural backgrounds and different languages, and we eat different food, and some of you don't like the food that other people eat, right? But here, <laughs> here we are under one roof declaring that the thing that matters more than any of those other barriers is the fact that we pledge allegiance to Christ that we are sinful and that he has died for us and we are resurrected in him, that that is the most important thing, that nothing else, everything else pales in comparison to that. And we are the family of God. How did that happen? How did that happen? And Paul would say it's because of Jesus. Because Jesus created a new humanity and a new family where the hostility that exists between all of the tribes was absorbed into him so that we might know peace with each other and peace with God. Here's the last thing I'm going to read. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says this. And then we're going to jump to our baptisms. Uh, Sometimes um, we think that the point of this new family that we're all pulled into is to sort of erase all the differences like sort of all assimilate into the same style of way that we worship God. But, but Paul says that there's actually a different point, that God's intent, this is um, chapter 3, verse 10, that God's intent was now, through the church, through us, this new humanity, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I don't know if you got that, but Paul is saying that the purpose of this new family that is gathered together, um, in, in united in peace, the point of this is to announce the wisdom of God to all the powers of this world. That the existence of this diverse, unique family that has different skin tones and different cultural viewpoints and has different language and accents and believe, that believes that they belong to Jesus as bigger as a cultural identifier than anything else, that that us gathering in this room together announces the wisdom of God to the powers the powers that seek to destroy and wreck us, the powers that seek to exploit our selfishness and cause chaos, this gathering announces to the powers that in this family, things are different. The point of this whole thing is that this family, we can all say I'm a sinner saved by God's grace and I might not agree with them, 
and I might not wear the same clothing, I might not vote the same way, I might have different preferences, and I don't understand why they eat the food that they do or talk in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable, but I probably come off that way too. And I'm really glad that Jesus saved us. And the ability to do that is a direct challenge to the powers. See, in this family, the powers, they don't get to define what happens here. Paul says in Galatians that in the family of God, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you all, all one in Christ. All of those cultural markers that created division and hostility and hierarchy and abuse, they're gone. And the things that once divided us and uh, that divide us and break us out there, they don't break here. They don't divide us and they don't break us in here. All that is to say, what we say here is that we are a family based on God's love and his grace. And he's renewing all of us. And that's got to humble us. That's got to humble us because we're no better than anybody else. That membership in this family will challenge us in a new way that we've never been challenged before. But there's no better way to grow than to walk alongside people who are different than us. Now today we get to celebrate the entrance of, of individuals into God's family through baptism. And there's some people who have come and they've planned that. And if you're saying, like, I didn't plan it, but I want to declare it. Like, I want to say and declare and celebrate that I, too, have made this decision, that I'm a part of this multicultural, multi-ethnic family of God. I want to speak to the powers that I am here, that this is God's wisdom. I'm going to invite you um, to actually leave now. And, and that sounds weird. Leave now. Uh, go, go find Teresa and she'll, she'll get the clothes that you need in order uh, to be baptized, because we're going to do that. Now, everyone else that is, is uh, not, not planning on being baptized or not making a last-minute decision to be baptized, I want to invite you to also respond in baptism in a particular way. Um, on the table, there are these little squares of paper, and they're pretty flimsy. Can I just see? There are these little pieces of paper. Uh, this is all actually dissolvable paper. And what I'm going to invite you to do is I'm actually going to invite you to write on this piece of paper a space of hostility. Write on this piece of paper a space of hostility that is in your own life or is in the world around you. A space of hostility and division that needs to be torn down. Maybe it's something that exists within your own family. Maybe it's something that exists within the family of God right here in this congregation. Or maybe it's a division or a hostility that exists in our greater world. And we want to see it come tumbling down. And so I'm going to invite you to write that on this piece of paper. And then when the band comes up as a part of our response and worship of God, I'm going to invite you to drop it into the baptism pool. As a symbol of saying, like, listen, Jesus, I'm giving you this hostility. I'm, I'm giving you this division and this barrier. I have hope and expectancy that you're going to do something about it. 
And I invite you that as you drop this into the baptismal pool, that you just say a prayer. I mean, cry out to God. Say, God, you have rescued me. You have saved me. You have ended the hostility between me and you. And now I want you to show up with this. I want you to do something with this. Does everybody understand? Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and we'll pray. Father God, nobody else could have done this. Like nobody else. (laughs) People have tried. People have tried to overcome these sort of barriers and these divisions and these hostilities, but nobody could have done this except for you. Nobody could have been in this small town and overcome every obstacle and crossed cultures and language. We, we recognize your power in that. And so, Father God, our response is to humble ourselves and say, gosh, if you let go of all of those barriers, if you cross them, then I will too. Because as followers of Jesus, we are called to do what we see the Son doing. And so, Father God, here we are. Here we are. Father God, um, we're really broken. We're really messed up. And so we come to you declaring that we are a sinner saved by grace. And it's because of your son. And so as we celebrate those who are getting baptized today to declare that in this public celebration, we want to worship you because of what you've done. And Father, as we drop these different areas of our lives or of our world that we want to see an end of the hostility and the brokenness and the division, we ask that you would hear our prayers. We await for what you're going to do because we know because you conquered the grave, you will conquer all of the graves. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Um, If we're going to have those of you who have pieces of paper to drop in the baptismal, we're going to have you do that first. Um, And so you can do that whenever you're ready during this first song. And then those of you who are going to get baptized, um, we're going to do that in just a minute.